you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. And we will finish up our study in the book of Titus uh, this morning. Titus chapter 3, and we looked at verses 1 through 7 last week. We'll look at verses 8 through 15 uh, this morning. I think I've mentioned it before, um, but I enjoy the, the television show Shark Tank. I know Russell and I are Shark Tank fans. It kind of annoys me when they do certain commercial breaks and create unnecessary tension. But other than that, it's interesting. If you don't know the show, it's a bunch of entrepreneurs, small business people who come and present their idea to their, their business plan to potential investors, uh, people with lots of money. They're calling them the sharks. Um, and they they talk about what their business plan is and this, how this product is revolutionary and where it's at in the market and whether they have patents. And, and they have this big discussion about what they want to do with their product and how they, the, the, the shark should invest in them and in the product that they have. Um, now, the thing is that as these potential investors ask questions, they usually come around to, to one key question, and that is, how many have you sold? Uh, in other words, how much money have you made? Because what they want to know as business people is, is this business profitable? Are you making a profit? And if you are making a profit, how much are you making? And can I determine whether or not me giving you money will help me to make a profit as well? Uh, there are other factors probably that get someone a deal. But the bottom line usually, especially for certain investors, is always the potential for profit. Am I going to make money? Now, of course, Shark Tank is all about the investment investment of money. Um, I'm not here to talk about the investment of money. As we come to God's word, we're talking about the investment of, of our lives. Um, we're talking about our, our the investment of our minds and our hearts and our souls, which would include our, our time and our money and everything else as well. But we're, we're all, in fact, every day investing our lives in one thing or another. And the question is, is it profitable? Is it worth me investing in? Um, not just financially profitable, but is it eternally profitable? Am I investing my life in things that will last, things that are advantageous, things that are worthy? It's a decision that we make every day. Uh, Andy Dillard has famously said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And so we, how are we spending our days? How are we spending our our lives and are we spending them? Are we investing them in worthy, worthwhile, profitable things? You won't be surprised if you've been with us in the book of Titus, but um, Paul tells Titus that what is profitable and what is worthy for investing our lives in, if we are believers, and, and what he wants the believers in the churches in Crete to invest in, is doing good works. That's been the big theme, hasn't it? Good works has been the theme throughout this whole book. And he tells Titus this, and he tells us this. As God's children, we are called to invest our lives in good works that are profitable, not arguments that are worthless. That's our big idea. I'll say it a couple more times. As God's children, we are called to invest our lives. What are we investing our lives in? In good works that are profitable, not arguments that are worthless. As God's children, we are called to invest our lives in good works that are profitable, not arguments that are worthless. Now, these good works are, 
are not profitable in that they earn us salvation. That was crystal clear last week. Um, if you didn't get that, I encourage you, you can jump online and hear that. This is not the point. They do not earn us our salvation, but they are profitable in that they fulfill they, they fulfill in us the purpose for which we were created, namely to glorify God. And as we've been changed by God through faith in Christ, we are called to reflect him. We are called to, to image him in this world by doing good works that show his heart of love and grace. And that is profitable. It accomplishes our purpose in the world. It accomplishes God's purpose in the world. It fulfills us. It gives us joy in that we are doing what we were made to do. So I would stand before you on the authority of God's word and say that I want you to invest, not in me. I don't have a product. I don't have an uh, entrepreneur thing or a small business that I want you to invest in. But if you are a child of God, I want you to, to leave saying that, that I am called to invest my life in good works that are profitable, not in arguments that are worthless. I think that's what Paul wants us to hear here in the book of Titus. And so let's read Titus chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 8 to the end of the chapter. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. We are called to invest our lives in good works that are profitable, not arguments that are worthless. We start off this, these verses with this phrase, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. But we have to ask the question, what is the trustworthy statement, and what are these things? And I think it's, it's, they're probably related. I, in fact, think they're probably the, the exact same thing. I think Paul is talking about the things that he's just said with regard to who we were apart from Christ, uh, how God has saved us through the work of, of the whole trinity, through God and through Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, and the way that we are now called to, to live in the world. This is the trustworthy statement. It's, it's the gospel. It's who we were, how Christ has changed us, and now how we are called to live in the world. So, so that saying and, and the things is the good news of the gospel and the call to bear the fruit of good works through the power of that truth. So Paul wants Titus... To, to insist on these things, to, to speak confidently about God in salvation, about the work of God in salvation, about the fruit of salvation, so that people who have believed will be devoted to good works. He wants Titus to be confident about the gospel and teach the gospel in such a way that the church 
would be concerned about being concerned about good works. I think that's sort of, see that phrase there? He says, so that those who have believed in God, this is verse 8, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those That careful and devote, very similar meanings. It's almost like he's saying, I want you, those who have believed in God, to be careful about being careful about devoting themselves to, to, to good it's It's the same idea. Be confident about being confident in good works. It's, it, it, be concerned about being concerned about doing good works. Um, it, it's this, this idea that, that if we, he's not supposed to preach salvation by works, but he's not supposed to preach salvation that doesn't produce good works. He's to preach the amazing grace of God that transforms us from self-centered people who couldn't do anything good into people who are God-centered and who are zealous for good works. So that's what we try to proclaim week after week, right? That God, through the working of the Spirit and the finished work of Christ, can transform you from a selfish jerk into a child of God who loves to do good works. Because apart from the gospel, that's who we are. Remember that? We're hated and hateful, and, and we're nasty people, and we're filled with malice and envy and anger. And God can transform us into people who love to do good works. He's preaching uh, that our, not that our, our service to others um, doesn't, doesn't save us, it doesn't make God love us more, but it overflows out of a heart of gratitude in our lives. It's the fruit of the transformation that has happened in our hearts. If you've not been saved by God's grace, I would call you to repent and believe in Christ to be transformed. But if you have, then the call is now devote yourself to good works. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we invest in our, our lives in doing good works? Why should we take the capital of our days and our breath and use it in pursuing godliness and doing good to others? It tells us there, in verse, then to verse 8, because these things are excellent and profitable for people. Are we supposed to do good works because they make us miserable? No, because they're excellent and they're profitable. That it's, it's worthwhile for individuals, for the church. We're to be focused on, on loving and serving one another, loving and serving those outside the church. We're to be devoted to giving and serving and helping and praying and encouraging and teaching. Why? Because those things are noble. They are, they are praiseworthy because they're beneficial. They're advantageous. They are profitable. First Timothy 4, I think, gives us a, a help on what this idea of profitable means. Here's some familiar verses. Um, Paul writes to Timothy in First Timothy 4, who's in a similar situation to Titus. And this is what he says in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, or it's profitable in every way. Why is it profitable? Because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So how do we define profitable? It has value for the present life and also for the life to come. There are some things that are profitable in this life, like exercise. But there are some things that are profitable in this life 
and in the life to come. They are of eternal value, and godliness and good works are these kinds of things. So your New Year's resolution to exercise and eat better, that's not a bad thing. It's profitable, and it will do good for you and for your body. It may even do good for your soul. But as I think about something like Matthew 24 and 25, a, a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name profits a person not just in this life, but into all eternity. That's something that lasts forever. We get a feel for what these good works are from verse 14. So Paul's closing out the letter, and what does he say in verse 14? And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Then he adds this, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So he closes out the letter again saying, I want everyone to be devoted to good works, okay? This is really important. Why? So that you can help cases of urgent need. Godliness is is profitable, but godliness is not something that's done just in our prayer closet. It's not done just when you're resisting temptation. Godliness and good works look like the life of Jesus. They look like us, as we saw earlier, being ready for every good work, looking for ways to bless people in need, especially in urgent need. Now, when you think about urgent need, what comes to mind? I think what comes to my mind are people in extreme poverty, urgent needs. We might think about uh, countries where famine exists. And if you desire to help people who are starving in, in Syria or in Somalia, then, then that's, that's a good work. And you're actually, we're right in line with the ancient church. If you read the letters of Paul, you know what they were often doing? Gathering collections to help people who were in famine. And that's happened all throughout church history up to this very moment. So there are urgent needs around the world. And seeking to do good to people in those situations, it honors God, and it's eternally profitable. There are also urgent needs within our community. Needs for jobs, needs for housing, needs for food. People who need help with addictions. There are homeless men and women who have felt the bitterness of this weather in ways that we can't even imagine. That's an urgent need. That's something that we can do good to help those that are in urgent need. But I think there's also urgent needs that have nothing to do with food and clothing and shelter. There are people who deal with depression and who deal with chronic pain. That's an urgent need. That's a need that someone needs to help with. There are people who are in the midst of a conflict with a family member and it just has them on the brink of giving up. And that's an urgent need. There are people who feel enslaved to sin. They're Christian and they just keep fighting and they're racked with guilt every day and they're ready to just give this whole Christianity thing up. That's an urgent need. That's something that the church can step in and help with. There are people who are overwhelmed as a parent. There are students who face peer pressure, who face bullying day after day. There are children who are struggling to understand how do I deal with with my anger? How do I deal with my fear? How how do I deal with the anxiety that I'm facing as, as a young kid? These are urgent needs. These are things that people are facing every day and it's and it's all that they can see and it's urgent. And we are called to meet the needs of others. It goes beyond simply physical. It goes into emotional and spiritual needs. There are urgent needs all around us. It goes to the greatest need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. If there's anything that's of eternal value, 
If there's anything that's truly profitable, it's ministering to others in need and proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them. That's, that's valuable. And Titus is to, to teach in such a way that people are concerned about these things. Titus 2, I think, gives us that pattern of the older men and the, the older women. The older men and the older women are to help the younger men and the younger women produce godliness, but they're also to help them with these things. You need to teach older women. You need to teach the younger women how, how to be a mom and how to be a wife. Why? Because sometimes that's an urgent need. Sometimes they just don't know how to do it. And sometimes young men need to be self-controlled and they need older men to come in and help them. Listen, your life is spinning out of control and you need to figure out how to be self-controlled. These are urgent needs. These are good works. And that's what the gospel rightly preached causes us to be concerned about such things. So Paul tells Titus that if he focuses his teaching on who we are apart from Jesus, uh, what God has done for us in salvation, then we will be a people who are devoted to good works, excellent, profitable works, things of eternal value. Now, in contrast to being devoted to good works, which are excellent, which are profitable, there are things to avoid. You see this uh, in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, I had a great paragraph within this um, uh, sermon manuscript, and it was all about things that are unprofitable, you know, in contrast to things that are profitable. But it was all, as I looked at it, it's just stuff that kind of came off the top of my head, you know. But probably from other places in Scripture, I would hope. But then I had to come back, and we have to let the text tell us what's unprofitable, right? What is Paul concerned about here? What does he say is unprofitable? He says, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. That's in contrast to the good works. He says, this is what I want you guys to avoid. Not the list that I came up with in my head, but these four things. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Foolish controversies. These are, um, there, there are legitimate controversies. There are doctrinal issues. There are, there are points of theology that are worth, worth discussing and worth wrestling with. But there are also controversies that are totally foolish. There are things that we just don't need to waste our time arguing about. An extreme example is something like, you know, the classic question of how many angels can stand on the head of a pin or something like that, you know. Or can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Why would we talk about things like this? These are foolish controversies. But those are just silly questions. But there are some things that people get mired in and bogged down in that are just foolish. There's a similar command in what we read from Second Timothy. You heard Russell read that earlier. It says this, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Foolish, ignorant controversies. In contrast to, to youth, it says to flee youthful passions and then to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then says have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about youthful passions. But I think that part of what he's saying here is that young people are often more ready to argue about foolish things. 
I know that that's true, been true in my life, that we just want to argue about dumb stuff that doesn't really matter. And, and, and Paul's saying, don't get caught up in that stuff. And don't get revert back into that. Don't be involved in foolish, ignorant controversies. Don't be involved in genealogies. Now, I'm not saying don't go to Ancestry.com and figure out your roots or something like that, you know. Uh, and I don't think he's saying that in your Bible reading that you've committed to, you should just, you don't have to worry about reading the genealogies, no matter how much you don't want to read the genealogies. Um, I think what he's talking about, here, here's 1 Timothy 1. He's, again, similar passage. I urged you when I was in Macedonia, this is 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So these myths and endless genealogies, what do they lead to? Speculation. Speculation is, is when we're just we're, we're thinking about things that we, we can't be confident about. So things you can't even know, really. Now, we can speculate about some things, but there's some things that just weren't, aren't worth speculating about. This myths, endless genealogies, it, to me it has the ring of, like, Bible code, extreme numerology nonsense. You know what I mean? Like, don't get caught up in that stuff. You, feel free, if you have Bible code on your shelf, don't donate it. Just throw it away. Um, now, I, I think some of it might be like elitism. It might be some sort of obsession with, with lineage. This would be the Judaizers, right? That if you're descended from the right person, well, then you're a godly person. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's, I, I, it, that's obviously not the gospel. The gospel is, is faith in Christ, not who we're descended from. In fact, what's the one genealogy that matters? It's the genealogy of Jesus, right? That he is the son of David that he's the son of Mary by a miraculous conception, that he's the son of God from eternity past. That's the only genealogy we really need to worry much about because that's where our salvation is found. So foolish controversies, endless genealogies, and what's it lead to? Dissension. It leads to discord. It leads to contention. And we're finding about things that don't even really matter. It leads to quarrels about the law that take people away from faith in Christ. And Paul tells Titus not to let these things distract him from what's really important. Don't focus on these things. Don't invest your time in talking about these things. And later he's going to say, don't even invest your time in fighting these guys and talking to them about it. So there are worthless things. And what are the worthless things we're supposed to avoid? Controversies genealogies, things that have some sort of ring of importance to them. It sounds like something we should talk about, but in the end, it just results in speculation. It just results in division, dissension, and fighting. Paul says that's worthless. And to gather God's children, how worthless is it for us to get together as God's children so we can fight about pointless theological minutia that doesn't really matter, that leads to dissension? In contrast, what is Titus supposed to do? He is supposed to teach. He's supposed to focus on the trustworthy things, the things that don't lead to fighting, but that lead to good works. This is what John Calvin says about these verses. Ironic that I would bring up Calvin, who sometimes causes dissension and fighting. Uh, but we won't go there. Uh, in doctrine, therefore, we should always have regard to usefulness, so that everything that does not contribute to godliness shall be held in no estimation. 
And yet those sophists, those smart folks, in babbling about things of no value, undoubtedly boasted of them as highly worthy and useful to be known. But Paul does not acknowledge them to possess any usefulness unless they tend to the increase of faith and to a holy life. They are worthless things. Why? Because they they just breed conversation that leads to contention and controversy. True doctrine leads to life change. It leads to an increase in faith. It leads to a holy life. It leads to good works. We don't study the scriptures to win arguments. We don't study the scriptures to build theological systems or to affirm a theological system. Doctrine is vitally important, but it's important because it's the source of the power that we need to have so that we can walk with God and please him. We study the scriptures because it teaches us the path of life and the path to joy. And that path is found in understanding the good news and how that good news is worked out in our lives. And if that, the, the things that we are studying don't produce righteousness and good works, it's a waste of time. It's unprofitable and it's worthless. Paul tells us to avoid these things. Don't get caught up in these things. He tells Titus, don't, even, don't get caught up in teaching about these things. Uh, the elders of this church, we are called to, to be careful, to be focused on teaching the truth, on rebuking false doctrine, but not to get bogged down in controversies and quarrels that don't matter. And in doing that, we want the church at large to not get bogged down in things that don't matter. We want your doctrine to be strong, but not simply so that you know how to fight and argue with people, but so that we all together are focused on doing good in our individual lives and as the church. That's the goal of doctrine. That's the goal of the teaching. That's the goal of the gospel. Now, what do you do with people who can't stop talking about this stuff there was someone at least some people within titus's church probably these guys who uh, who came in and were teaching a different doctrine and they just wouldn't stop talking about it paul talks about the person who stirs up division look at it there in verse um, verse 10 as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned Strong words. Paul talks about the division maker. He shows us that sometimes the controversy isn't the only thing that's foolish. Sometimes the person that's talking is a fool. And we need to avoid them. He says, warn them once and then warn them twice and then have nothing to do with them. Parallels, we saw this. It's parallel to 1 Timothy 4.7. We already read this. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And 2 Timothy 2.23 says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And he goes as far to here say, have nothing to do with the person who just can't stop talking about those things. Now, there's a balance. I, I don't know if you noticed when Russell was reading, but it says there that, that we're, we're correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So that may happen. But there's also, there's that hope, and there's there's patience. But there's also some folks where you warn them once, we've got to stop talking about this, okay, guy? And then you warn them twice, you, say, you just keep bringing this up over and over again, and it's just not important, and you're causing division. 
And then the third time you say, it's time to leave because you're just causing division amongst people. Now that sounds harsh. It sounds like it could be a, you know, cause a bad rep, right? But I love that he says this guy's self-condemned. He's pronounced his own guilt on himself by, by just continuing to be concerned about things that don't matter and stirring up division. My thought is that, you know, someone like this leaves the church and they go to some other church and they say, well, Pastor so-and-so kicked me out because I was trying to help them understand this extremely important piece of doctrine. And after a while, they just sort of sent me on my way. I'm not worried about that because they are self-condemned. And eventually the people that they're talking to are going to say, yeah, I understand why they sent you on your way because you can't get off of this point and you're causing division in our church. Do we try to help people? Yes, but there are some people who will not be helped. They are blinded, it sounds like, in part from that passage in, in, in 2 Timothy. They're blinded by either their own arrogance or by Satan himself. And, and they are, there's, there's a, a time Jesus says, right? He tells his disciples, go, and if they receive you, that's great. And if they don't, just shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else where they'll listen to you. There's a time for that. We want to be patient. We want to be wise. Uh, but there's also a time to just say no way, no longer. Paul gives that instruction to, to try, but not to invest in a person who seems to be unprofitable. That's going to take wisdom. That's going to take grace. Uh, it's going to take time. But it's said in light of the fact, I think, that, that the church that Titus is to be the elder over is filled with people who want to grow people who want to hear the truth and want to do good works. And the problem is this guy, the person who stirs up division, is just a big vacuum that sucks all of your time and energy and causes issues and causes division. And all you're doing is putting out fires and trying to correct things that this person is messing up. He says, we don't have time for that. We need to get them out so you can focus on teaching what is true and what is right so that good works are performed and happen in the church. We need to be reminded day after day that we're called to invest our lives in good works that are profitable, not arguments that are worthless. And if we're focused on worthless arguments, then we're not focusing on these good works. It's the time to just say, God bless you, but we're not talking about this anymore. And if you want to stop talking about it, we will talk about what matters and we'll work on growing in godliness and good works. I think those decisions are difficult. But I think that there's a place and a time for them. I, I, what I love, too, is the way that this all ends. After all this teaching, you see how it ends? It ends with all these names, Artemis and Tychicus and Zenus and Apollos. Paul ends the letter, and he's talking about a team. He says, listen, Titus, you're not alone. There's a team that we are ministering with. I'm on your side. And, and Titus, I want, I'm going to... I'm going to send Artemis or Ticket Kiss. One of these guys is coming to you. And when they come, I want you to come to Nicopolis because that's where I'm going to be. Titus, you need a break, okay? Because you've been dealing with the Cretans and you've been dealing with the Judaizers. And, you know, Ticket Kiss is going to come and he's going to take over. And I want you to get on a boat and I want you to come over here to Nicopolis and we're going to spend some time together because that's going to be good for you. Isn't that encouraging? And then he says, and you need to send, do your best to send Zenus and Apollos on their way. So you've been helping them or they've been helping you or something. And now it's time for them 
to move on and to continue to do the ministry that they've been called to do. I think that's so encouraging because the task is hard. And as we think about having brought on two new elders, I'm so encouraged that the task is now spread among four folks. We are a small church, but at the same time, the task is always demanding. The task is always difficult to stay firm when you deal with tough decisions like the ones he's talking about. And I love, too, the way that it ends in verse 15. This sounds just like a throw-off phrase, but just imagine that you're Titus on an island all alone dealing with nasty Cretans, dealing with this controversy stirring up all over the place. And it says in verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. How encouraging that would be to this brother. He says, greet those who love us in the faith. There's this, there's this love amongst all the people who, who are holding firm to the gospel. And Titus, you're not alone. There's people who love you. I think that he would just be so bogged down in all of this. And to, to, to get a bigger picture for this huge community, not just of fellow ministers, but of just brothers and sisters in Christ who say, hey, tell Titus we said hello. It's, it's good to remember that. They, they love you, Titus. They're praying for you. They want you to succeed. They're concerned about you, Titus. That's the community that we live in. It's not just our church. It's this, this broader community where we're all serving together, where we're all working together. I've got brother pastors in town that I meet with. I meet with our elders, and we encourage one another. And we together as a church encourage one another and say, listen, there is love amongst all of us who are part of this faith. We're working together for the gospel. And I love that. Um, and so there's this, this great call, again, just to, to say it again. As God's children, we're called to invest our lives in good works that are profitable, not arguments that are worthless. That is the call. And there's a unique role here that Titus has in making sure that that happens. He is to teach in such a way that those good works are produced.